Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, gain ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity, and today we are talking with a world-renowned author, Ken Liu, who is a winner of the Nebula Award, the Hugo Award, World Fantasy Awards for short stories, novellas, and novels. And I want to welcome you to our show. Thank you for having me, Regina. Glad uh, to be here. Uh, thank you. I want to say that uh, I started listening to LeVar Burton Reads, a podcast, because my friend was like, you're a geek, you love LeVar you should check out this podcast. And <laughs> do you, are you, uh, before I go into why I'm bringing that up, did you, do you, um, did you ever watch Star Trek Next Generation or Oh uh, yeah, Lavar is amazing. Jordy <laughs> uh, was such a, yeah, was a great hero of mine. So when you found out he was actually going to read one of your short stories, like how did you react? I was totally uh, just uh, in disbelief. Uh, it was awesome. So basically, I'm I'm sitting there and I'm listening to one of his episodes, and um, they're very good short stories that he picks. Um, but your short story, The Paper of Menagerie, it really it shook me to my core, and I actually tweeted that out. And you were so nice and responded. You were like, "Thank you." <laughs> um, <laughs> but ha have has that reaction been common? Have you heard that from people that it was just su such a powerful? story. Yeah, I've, I've heard from a lot of readers um, on Twitter or by email um, or on Facebook uh, who who really found the story resonating with them. And, uh, you know, it makes me very happy to hear that the story worked. And so, so I just want to kind of get into that. And because this is a science show, we're going to like eventually talk about your new Star Wars book and how science is integrated into a lot of your stories. But I kind of first want to talk about this story because that's how it got me to know you as an author. It was so moving to me because it's that relationship with the mother and such a complicated relationship, which I honestly have to say I also have with my Chinese mother. Um, so it was just so incredible. Where, like, what was the origin of that? And I also read your other um, story, the short story about the memories of my mother. Also a very, very complicated story about mothers and relationships between children and their mothers. Um, so where did this all come from? Like, I don't know. That's I guess that's a long conversation, but let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the paper menagerie actually started out as um, as a response to a specific um, anthology call. There there was an anthology uh, themed around wizards or magic users, mm -hmm. and uh, so I wanted to write a story about a special kind of magic user, a, a kind of wizard that. Very different from from the pointy hat, the robe, the the wand, um, you know that that image of a fantasy wizard. So I said, okay, what what can I do to to create a a kind of um, magic user that be very different from that traditional um, vision? Right. And then at the same time, I also um, remember reading uh, these accounts uh, of uh, so-called male order brides, um, women basically from developing countries who seek marriage then in uh, developed nations in order to find a better life for themselves. Now, um, 
these women are often ridiculed um, in Western accounts, right. and, and they're sort of made the butt of jokes. Um, um, these women, if you read their accounts, they're in- incredibly brave. Um, it takes a great deal of personal courage uh, to give up everything that you know, to to, to leave your homeland, um, to go to make a new life for yourself and, and for your children, um, and to try to find love um, uh, in, in, in the most unlikely of circumstances. And, and, and these stories are really moving about how they, how they try to, how they struggle to establish connections with their new husbands and how they um, uh, find, uh, hold on to uh, their, their own identity while trying to adapt to a drastically different way of life. Uh, and I just found the whole experience incredibly moving. And so I wanted to write a story that centers their experience and, and tries to uh, portray them uh, in a sympathetic way. And then finally, uh, the, the, the third little seed for the story was the fact that when I was little, uh, my grandmother uh, would teach me how to make origami, and I have a lot of very fond memories of, of doing that with my grandmother. Uh, and, and so I wanted to make paper animals the fantastical element. So, you know, put all of those together, uh, that that's how I ended up starting the story. Yeah, and, and I want to say that I just, I really love the few things that you touched on, this idea of mail-order brides. And, you know, as as an Asian American growing up, there's that just horrible stereotype and that, like you said, butt of jokes, and you just really embraced it and you just turned it around. And and me personally, as a, you know, astrophysicist, as a science nerd, I kind of only read stories that I, I joke, if, if there's a wizard or there's a robot, I'll read it. Otherwise, I'm not interested. Um, so, <laughs> so when you wrote this story, it was just like, it was perfect. It just spoke to everything um, that I really cared about because it was very, very moving. And it also had, you know, this identity, this idea of being half between two worlds. I love that that part of the story where it talks about the women in the neighborhood talking about um, this, you know, half white, half um, Asian boy. And they're like, there's something off about him, you know? And do you think he even like understands us? I really, really loved that scene because it was so true to like being, I think, a mixed kid, an ambiguously ethnic um, kid in America. So it was just, it was just so yeah, perfect. So yeah, many things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, um, one of the motivations, uh, you know, behind that story also is, is I wanted to, um, do two things. One is to highlight the kind of pervasive white supremacy, um, and racism directed against children of mixed heritage, uh, especially in, um, parts of the country that are sometimes considered very liberal and, mm-hmm. and tolerant. Uh, and in fact, it's, that's not the case at all. Uh, you know, the, the kind of white supremacy and uh, racism is very pervasive. And a lot of us end up internalizing that kind of racism if we're not part of the white Anglo-Saxon mainstream. And, uh, and, oh, I uh, know. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. And the funny thing also is that, you know, I, I, I wrote the story also as a, as a, as a response to a kind of idealized, uh, immigrant narrative uh, right. that I find very troubling, which is, you know, um, especially if you're a writer of, uh, of Chinese descent, a lot of times in, uh, in the U.S., uh, you're expected to perform and to create, uh, ideal immigration narratives mm-hmm. of, of assimilation, right. um, of, of, of stories about how, ooh, you're just, you know, as, as white, uh, uh, in, in a performative sense and mm-hmm. as quote unquote American, um, as anybody else. And the whole story is about how you come to assimilate and, and become 
this idealized vision of a non-threatening um, Asian American, mm-hmm. uh, and and I found this whole thing extremely damaging as a narrative. And so, you know, I I wanted to create a, a story that sort of challenged that and and told a different vision of um, of what it means to be American. Um, one one of the interesting things about the story is that some some readers seem to not understand that the mother actually is as American as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to learn English, and you don't have to cook typical um, so-called white American dishes, and you don't have to do things like TV white mothers in order to be American. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is as American as, as, as any other U.S. citizen, and uh, she has uh, you know decided to live out her her life this way and her part is also her life is also part of the american experience i wanted to uh make it clear that that was the case to center her narrative and and her son's inability to accept her for that uh due to internalized racism is you know the core of the tension here but that's not the only um way way uh or the only level at which the story works i think the idea of trying to understand our own parents and trying to figure out how our life fits or doesn't fit with their life is a universal experience. I mean, all of us had this, go through this experience of not being able to understand our parents and then coming slowly to to, to accept them for who they are and to understand who they are as we grow up our teenage and college years. And it's part of the human experience. And I wanted to portray one specific instance of that, uh, but it is part of a much more universal experience. I, I want to touch on a couple of things that you mentioned. You mentioned this kind of idealized version of Asian Americans, and, and I totally agree with you. I don't know if you've read any of Gene Yang's work. Um, he was on the show, and we were talking about this uh, this new, well, new-ish comic that he wrote, The um, Green Turtle. Right, right. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And, and, and so his mom... And the hero, I mean, they don't have the best relationship, but and she's not perfect. She's not this perfect Asian American mom, um, and, and you know, American born Chinese. All of these things are these flawed characters that actually do have a lot of internalized racism inside of them. As I mean, you know, internalized racism in their um, in their lives as well. And and I really really like that. I I love showing, be it Asian Americans, any kind of underrepresented group as flawed, because we are flawed. And it that is, you know, just like everyone else, like any other human. But that has consequences too of, of those of those flaws. And actually, it has consequences if you think we aren't right. So right. That's one of the tricky things about doing representation right. work, or at least if you position or view your work as part of that, because the, the the problem of of diversity is in fact that diversity is an emergent collective quality. It's not an, it's, it's not a single shot thing. So right. if all you have is a single instance of something, then of course it's impossible to portray the complexity, the internal complexity, and the diversity of the community or the experience that you know the the single instance is a reflection of. So. What has to happen is there must be many instances of representations, many different creators coming into it and, and trying to um, normalize uh, the experience of, of, of marginalized groups as, in fact, part of the American chorus. Uh, but that requires not one single individual, but rather a collective effort. And, and I think that's often missing from the conversation when we sort of point to specific examples um, and then criticize 
the ways they're inadequate or flawed or whatever. But but a lot of times these are reflections of of the complexity and diversity of the community as a whole, which can only be seen when there are many representations and many pieces of artwork that engage with the experience. Right. And as we know, that's the overall issue, right? That's That's the institutional issue. I'm going to bring us back to the other short story that um, has gotten a lot of fandom and a lot of people love it. And it's the the memories of my mother. And, and I just read it last night. And and we were talking about this many representations from many different authors. But if you in that story and it's and it's not even that long, but in that story, you have many representations of one person because you have them growing throughout their whole life. And I, I found it very interesting how even in that short like two pages or I don't know, I read it on the internet, but, um, but in in the short amount of writing, you could actually kind of portray the complexities of like getting older. And I think, but having that mother's, uh, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> you should read it, but it's uh, a really difficult relationship with that mother who's not dealing with the same kind of issues. And, and, and I felt parallel between um, the paper menagerie and the memories of my mother of having this, experience this life experience that's different from your mother because you have in paper menagerie a woman who was very brave came from another country and is living in a place that she's very unfamiliar with and then you have a kid who is you know mixed race having that different experience and then you have this other story where again they're having these different experiences and they're trying to reconcile that relationship it's super complex and has some physics in it so um did you see that parallel as you were like writing them or or is that just coincidence <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I can't say that when I was writing Memory of My Mother, I had the paper menagerie in my head. Right. I, I actually right. try to forget stuff I've written as soon as possible because um, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think one of the problems with having written a lot of stories and a lot of novels is that if, um, if you know, I mean, I've learned over the years that it's, it's, it's completely unpredictable why some stories will receive a lot of attention and others don't. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the the dangerous tendency is to try to extrapolate from these examples as though they're meaningful. But <laughs> like there's I'm a doing. huge amount of <laughs> well, no 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 no, <laughs> no let, let, okay. let, let me go out. This this this, this <laughs> you you will see this 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 ties back to your point. The danger is to um extrapolate and to uh not recognize that there's a huge amount of luck and mm-hmm. unpredictability in the way why some works get you know attention and some don't. And so the tendency is to think, well, there's a magic about that particular story, which is why it got so much attention. So I, I need to recreate that magic. Mm-hmm. I need to write something else that 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 follows that that recaptures that magic. And I just don't believe that. Um, yeah. I, I think it's extremely important to forget about uh, what happened in the past and to focus on the next story and to always treat the next story as the most exciting story you'll ever write and, and the next story is the best story you'll ever write and, and that's always my attitude so I, I try to forget about everything I've done in the past and try to do something new with every new story that said <laughs> I do think you're 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 absolutely right that 
there are some themes that are particularly interesting to me um, thematically, the kind of uh, stories that I, I like to dwell around and the complicated relationship we have with our parents and the way we try to separate ourselves from their experience and, and the inability for us to both comprehend their experience and to have them understand the ways in which our lives are different is, you know, a very core part of the human experience. Um, I mean, when we're very small children, we, we, we have a sense in which, you know, our lives and our parents' lives are merged. We, we are one entity and, and that sense of separation, of, of defining your own separate space can't really happen until until you actually understand the the the, the ways in which your parents are also individuals with their own separate ideals and their own separate experiences that are just as valuable as yours. You know, it's a it's a growth moment as you finally come to understand that. And and both memories of my mother and the paper menagerie deal with the fact that in that process of separation and and growth what's what's important actually is to empathize um, yeah. and and to come to understand how your parents are in fact neither ideal awesome gods nor terrible people mm-hmm. uh which is sort of the 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 poles that we swing between as we grow up well and it's and it's um it's so hard like i i, I was reading your stories and also gene yang's stories and i'm thinking to myself if i would have read these when i was 20 when i when i i have a child now um when i wasn't a mother it just would have been totally different. It just, it, it, it's, it's so, it's so crazy to like, I'm listening to you talk about this idea of empathizing with your parents and it resonates so much with me because it's, it's so hard. It's so hard to do that. But once you kind of um, have children or kind of have a similar experience, you, it's, 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 it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're, you're definitely right. And and I think I ended up writing a lot more about parent, uh, child relationships, uh, after having children of my own. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, similar to what you were explaining. It's having, having your own children and, and getting a sense of that responsibility of, of someone dependent on you and, and how you are responsible for shaping and, um, laying out, uh, the beginnings of, of their life's path. Um, it really does change your perspective and, and allows you to, I think, come to understand uh, the kind of um, hardships and, and the kind of doubt that your your parents faced uh, in a way, in a visceral way that I, oh, yeah. I couldn't have understood before. Yeah, and, and just this idea of perspective. Um, your kid have I love the way you said that. As a tiny little kid, you imagine that your your lives are linked. I remember as a kid. Again, complicated relationship with my mother, but as a kid, I was like, we will never separate. Like, the idea of moving out was just like, you know, as a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, moving out when I grew up was just terrifying, you know? And then my my daughter right now is eight or nine. She says that to me. She's like, oh, you know, I, I want to live with you for most of my life. <laughs> I will go <laughs> off to college and then we'll live next to each other. And then shifting for, like, the parent and, and, like, this kid looks to me like this. Why? How can they look at me like this? I'm not as perfect as they, you know, as they see. You know, you can see it in their eyes. And that brings me to this idea of your new book, um, the, the Legend of Luke Skywalker, the Star Wars book, and this idea of one person, you know, being so different.
basically this new book is um, stories about Luke Skywalker told by various people on the ship. And they're all very, very different. Some people see him as a hero. Some people see him as um, just a guy. Some people see him as, um, you know, not even real, um, mythical. So I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit for our, you know, ner- nerdy fan base, and myself included. Um, of course. Yeah. But so, like, how did that story come up? And then I want to talk to you about how this story reminds me of an episode of the Batman the Animated Series. <laughs> ha. Uh, so, um, uh, so Lucasfilm uh, Publishing, um, you know, they 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 were reaching out to writers, uh, some of them who have written for Star Wars extensively, some some who are new, um, to create a series of books um, in the lead up to the Episode Eight um, mm-hmm. Smart. and Journey to the Last Jedi, and so. Um, I was one of the writers tapped, uh, to contribute something. And I've been a lifelong Star Wars fan, and I can tell you about that later. But, uh, <laughs> let me talk about the book first. Um, All right, we'll talk so, about that too. <laughs> so, so, you know, they want to, uh, the, 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 the idea around the book is a little unusual. I don't, I don't think there have been many or maybe any canon books, uh, that are done this way. But mm-hmm. essentially, this is a, a, collection of in-universe legends and tall tales about Luke Skywalker. So um, in terms of, you know, fans who are really into the whole canon versus non-canon business, uh, <laughs> these stories are, are uh, complicated. Uh, yeah. the, the, the fact that there is this, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's structured a little bit like the Canterbury Tales. Right. Um, the fact that there is this little voyage and there are these crew members telling stories, that's, that's definitively canon. But what is, what is the status of, of, of the story? Right. Um, that, is there that an ounce tell? of truth? Is it all true? Is it none of it's true? You know. That's right. That's yeah. right. So it's, uh, has this unreliable canon kind of quality to I love it. it. And I, I like that. I always liked to, <laughs> To, to play with this, because the fact is, you know, if you talk about epistemology, a lot of the things we know about um, our world uh, lives in that unreliable canon. Right, they're like third party, I mean, right? Right. For, for example, you know, what, what is the history of Thanksgiving? You know, <laughs> is, is <laughs> right. the whole original Pilgrim story true? Is that is that is that actually factually true? Mm-hmm. Is that is that just a retroactively reconstructed story mm-hmm. um what well, who who is the real you know historical george washington you know what what did he actually do did he have the cherry tree episode um right. that, that we read in children's books is that actually true um how did he cross the delaware you know was he actually standing there as the, as the painting portrays or, or something different um, with any historical figure or even contemporary celebrity, you know, that's, that's the s- status of what right. we know about them. You know, okay. half of the yeah. stuff we know about them are maybe true and the other half are tall tales. And mm-hmm. we have a very hard time separating out which is which. Right. And well, I mean, to, to bring us back to the other stories too, I mean, um, there's very, at least in my, oh, both my sides, my Mexican side and my Chinese side, they have these very, like fantasy like historical stories about our family too. It's very like it's very Joy Luck Club. You know, yes, and, yes. And, we we have a lot of yeah, a lot of uh, personal family lore. Right. Yep. I mean so this is this is like uh, like you said, there's not a lot of novels that are written in this way, but like our society is written in this way, right? <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um you know somebody like Luke is uh, is essentially a perfect figure for this because, mm-hmm. you know, he is somebody who 
um, is famous. Right. Uh, everybody knows stories about what he did in the galaxy, and then he disappeared. He mm-hmm. he, he he faded out of public life for uh, for decades, and, and so you know that that creates the perfect setup uh, for him to become the canvas on which people project their fears and hopes. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's how legends are born, and right. so as you said. Some in some of the stories, you know, his exploits are are clearly exaggerated to the point of, um, uh, you know, uh, myth creation. Right. And, and in other stories, um, he is the vehicle by which the tellers aggrandize themselves. And, right. and in yet other stories, he is the villain. You know, from the imperial perspective, he is a terrifying war criminal uh, who who brings death and destruction wherever he goes. Um, all like, of these stories are stories about him, and and you know, and, and I wanted to use these stories to fill in a, a fuller portrayal of how the galaxy um, reacts to Luke uh, and to the events of uh, of of the original uh, trilogy. Have you heard the fan theories about Jar Jar being like an evil villain in like the first three? Star Wars movies. I, I do remember <laughs> reading about that theory, which is awesome. And in fact, there is one story in the uh, in the book um, that uh, is similar in spirit to that story. It's a yeah. conspiracy yep. theory yep. Um, by by one of those Death Star truthers um, <laughs> right. who who has a whole explanation for what actually happened. Right, because he's like, you don't know. I got the inside dirt. Um, right, I, I, you, you, you're too gullible, right? right you trust right. all these propaganda from the government, but right. but I've got the truth, right? Um, so I'm I'm reading about your new book that just came out in November, and I'm reading it, and I was a giant fan. Not only am I a giant fan of Star Trek, but I was a giant fan of Batman the animated series in the '90s. I don't know if you watched that show. Um, like, I don't. I, I didn't okay. actually. Know. It, was, it was like the first kind of dark portrayal, but for kids still, um, version of Batman. Because you had the like campy 60s, 70s version. Right. And, of course, um, and right. then you had the comics, but, and you had some dark versions of the comics, but this was an animated series in the early 90s. And there's um, one episode called The Legends, The Legend of the Dark Knight. And it is, it actually, all the other episodes of Batman is like Batman, he's fighting the Joker, he's fighting all these people. It's very, it's very obvious. But this was the only episode in which you see Batman for maybe a few seconds. And he's at the very, very end of the episode. But the beginning of the episode are three kids, and they're hanging out in an alley. And they're talking about who they think Batman is and stories they've heard about Batman. And, oh, that's awesome. And it's, it's, like, it's like exactly, I shouldn't say exactly, but very, very similar to your book that came out. And each of the versions of Batman that these three kids talk about, um, it's like the 1960s campy Batman. It's like a Batman version from the cur- like the 80s comic books where there's like a female Robin and Batman. It's like a post-apocalyptic world. Um, and it's it's super interesting. And I, and the more we talk, the more I realize that this is such a common thing, you know, like the, this way of, of telling these stories and having a story of people, you know, kind of sharing their ideas of who these famous people are is it's genius, but it. It has been around, right? So it's nice to actually. Yeah, it, it is. It is. You know how we how it's how we do it. I mean, I'm sure this is this is basically how you know people were swapping stories about Achilles and right. Odysseus, and you know this is this is how it's done. And, right. Uh, and uh, it's a it's an ancient ancient device, and it, it's true to our experience because you know as a species we're obsessed with stories, and right. this is how we understand the world. And. Uh, you know, epistemologically, a lot of what we think we know are, are stories, and, mm. and ultimately, 
um, unreliable, and yet, you know, they reflect some facet of the truth. Which is why we our tagline is sharing stories of human curiosity. What we try to do here on the show is to make science digestible, right? And like fun and mm-hmm. accessible. And so people don't get bored and not intimidated. So I want to bring us now to this idea of stories, because a lot of your stories, a lot of it has to actually, it, it deals with science in a way that's, um, I think, approachable. And you yourself are a computer scientist. So is that, does that affect you actually putting in these like nuggets of science, technology, engineering, math, you know, STEM into your stories? I, I think so. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is this is like a, a, a very big and complicated topic. But, but <laughs> yeah. here's my, my have all show about here's it. <laughs> uh, here's my aesthetic. Um, I think we're living in one of these really extraordinary historical moments. You know, never in the history of humankind has it been possible for the average person to have access to so much cutting-edge research uh, for free. You don't even need to be a university professor or student to be able to log on to the Internet and access uh, the latest papers. Um, the beauty of science and math is more accessible to the average person than ever before. Um, it, it's really, truly an extraordinary moment. Um, you could find great beauty uh, by reading uh, science and math papers uh, and, and truly find out something new about about the world that we live in. And so a lot of my stories try to uh, bring a little bit of that beauty to readers who don't otherwise read papers uh, that find very interested in the latest research in various fields. And I try to find nuggets that that, that intrigue me and, and seem to um, suggest a story around them of some kind. So a lot of my stories really come from just browsing papers and, and bumping into interesting discoveries. Well, I, I will stick up for the general public just slightly, because a, 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 as a scientist, I've read many papers as well, and sometimes they are not easily digestible. And I, and I, and I think that... <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think that we as scientists, and a lot of people are already doing this, a lot of, there are a lot of sci- good science communicators out there, people that are, you know, taking those um, scientific papers and kind of morphing them into, you know, I would say um, less jargony language, maybe making videos, making podcasts, stuff like that. There are many people doing that. But I think that uh, the movement to kind of make that beautiful subject like you talk about into a way where we can really connect it with the public that don't have that kind of background of, you know, I know what this jargony word means, or I'm even comfortable opening up, you know, a a link that will take me to a, you know, a journal paper. There's this giant wall of intimidation that exists in our society when it comes to, you know, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. So even even that that word, (laughs) you know, so like I, I, I think when somebody is more likely to go to that YouTube channel, like the React channel or something that my daughter spends too much time on. 
it's accessible because it's fun. It, it grabs their emotions and makes them feel good. And it, and if we as scientists can't do a little bit of that, then that's on us, you know? So, um, and I think that's that, why... That, that, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that, that's a very um, uh, charitable view, uh, <laughs> I, I won't say, um, of, of the public's uh, lack of interest in science. But, but no, no, I, yeah. I, 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 I get your point. <laughs> um, I, I think also one of the interesting things about, about us is that, you know, we, we as a species, I think, are, are, have evolved to understand the world through narrative. So mm-hmm. we, we actually have a very hard time understanding the world as it is without mm-hmm. translation through stories. Oh, so absolutely. We as a species like to imagine the world to have meaning, a deeper meaning, uh, a, a kind of uh, plot to it, right? Uh, and so a lot of my stories do, you know, end up um, having having this hopeful note about human nature because I, I do think we're pretty special that way. Uh, we 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 seem to be unable to understand the world except through stories, uh, but the stories also give us uh, allow us to do extraordinary things. Right, and so that which brings us to your books that I want to bring up: the Dandelion Dan- Dynasty books and. I have not read these books. I'm very sorry. <laughs> but I, I've read a lot of reviews and I've read a lot of um, about them. And a lot of people are saying that they it reminds them of Game of Thrones. And when you say I hope, is there a lot of hope in those books? <laughs> that was my question. <laughs> I, I think so. Okay. I think so. I mean, um, what's extraordinary, I think, about my book is that um, the the this is these are books in which magic really doesn't play a huge role. Mm-hmm. Um, the role played historically by um, wizards or magic users or great magicians uh, is, is played by engineers. Right. Uh, these are these essentially stories about the beauty of engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than coming up with some spell or some extraordinary act of faith uh, by praying to the god to, to resolve an issue, the heroes in my book are engineers. They, right. they, they, they essentially find their way out of discover principles about the world which can then be turned to to some advantage against their enemies. Um, and, and they these are not discoveries limited to the natural world. They also probe into um, social engineering in the sense of hmm. uh, you know politics really is uh, is a history of, of the technology of collective decision making. And um, my my heroes are engineers uh, who think about how to socially organized uh, in, in better ways to facilitate better ways of collective decision-making uh, to create a more just world. Uh, I mean, of course, it's a, it's, a, it's a book full of wars and violence and, and, and people doing great deeds, and, and there's a lot of discussion about the role of marginalized groups and historically oppressed groups and how they can achieve more justice. But overall, um, the, the, the story is a celebration about rationality and the way in which uh, a faith in our ability to understand the world and to work out better ways of, of, of living in it um, is, you know, it, 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 it is a hopeful message, I think. Right. right. And so I, I like that. I really, really like what you just said where, you know, the, we're using engineering in a way that isn't just physical, but social. And, and I think about that all the time. Um, half of my job, I, I teach physics and astronomy, but half of my job is 
inclusion and outreach specialist that I made for Western. And I, I do a lot of inclusion and equity stuff. So I, I've never heard it that way. And I really, now I'm just going to steal it and I'll be like, Ken Liu wrote this. And I, <laughs> and that's what I do. I, I, as you're talking and it, I, 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 my mind works in weird ways and it instantly went to um, Avatar, The Last Airbender. Did, have you ever watched that series? I am not. Oh, I, man. I hear people talk about it, but I am not. No. So, I mean, basically, there's a lot of magic. There's a lot of, like, you know, um, water bending and earth bending, and which is, means they can manipulate these these elements. But then there's one character that has no powers, and he, but he becomes their leader. And he, he is one of the oldest people, too, but oldest, like, you know, teenagers. But he's an engineer, and he, like, comes up with all these things that the people with powers can't don't think of right because they have these powers so they don't have to think of things in that way it's almost like a crutch to them that they can't you know figure out these problems in a physical way and it's it's very interesting yeah. that this like one character that people make fun of because he doesn't have the powers you know has this intellect and has has these problem solving skills because he's you know devoid of those powers so it's just very interesting that's right that's right i i, I have very little patience with superhero <laughs> stories in general unless the superheroes are superheroes with no powers at all i mean that's how right. batman is interesting right the superhero with no powers the, the, those are much more interesting to me in stories well he does have a, a chip on his shoulder and he's a bit bitter about it but yeah yeah he also has a lot of money which i guess is a superpower right, yes, right. But that is a good point right that's the line from the trailer that of the justice league that just came out um but so so all of this interest like you were saying about like the technology and the engineering brings me to your um, award-winning translation of three-body problem. And I, I think some some of our listeners might be like, well, you know, you just translated it. That's not, I mean, but it, it's, it's intense. Like, you've gotten so much praise for translating these series of books, um, which were written in Chinese, and they are very popular. And my question is, is that, like, how, what was that process like? And did you ever come across, like, a lot of, terminology that related to like orbital dynamics or any kind of physics that you were like, I don't know what this means here. And I have to do a lot of research. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is the author of uh, the three body problem and the sequels, you know, he's an extraordinary individual. He's yeah. an engineer himself. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, who, who's had a passion for, for science and technology. And so these books reflect that. I mean, these are, these are, these are, you know, these books are, the three body books are very much um uh, classical science fiction in mm -hmm. the sense that they they focus on technology as um, a development as as a solution to um humankind's crises and and, and problems it, it's important to think about things like elections and parliament mm -hmm. and courts and lobbying groups and juries and right. uh political parties um and and all of these is really technology because especially what are they they are they are forms of social organization tools right. to channel um and to allow people to uh surface their desires uh the three body books are actually very extraordinary in, in terms of how they also consider the evolution of political uh forms of technology of 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 the technology of Collective decision making, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 I think I think that's one aspect of the book that doesn't really get a whole lot of attention, but but it's fascinating, interesting to think about. So, uh, in terms of the question you were uh, you were asking um, about terminology, uh, the jargony science 
technology, orbital mechanics stuff, that, that stuff is actually trivial. Um, it was actually trying to capture the, um, the, the, the cultural aspects mm-hmm. and, and the different emphasis that the author places on, on, uh, various social concepts, uh, in a way that feels honest and true to the original vision and that's also accessible to an Anglophone reader without exoticizing the original. And that right. was, you know, a challenge. Uh, I often had to ask the author to, to, to figure out which particular sense, uh, right. intended, and then to figure out how to guide the translation in a, in a direction that accurately reflected that. I want to respect your time and we're almost done, but so I want to say a couple things. You were talking about the the politics that are are in these uh, the three body problem, um, problem books and how um, you know not a lot of people are focusing on the politics. But you have a quote, or you you and the original author um, have received a quote from President Obama, <laughs> who's like um, talks about you know, reading this book, dealing with everyday, you know, political life, which I thought was like really awesome. I just want to give you props for that. And um, yeah, that was pretty cool. I just, I was like, wow, I would, I would just like die. But the second thing you were talking about this, like, again, we keep on coming back to, there isn't just, you know, the hard sciences, the physical sciences that we as people in STEM and in the sciences are trained to be objective and all that. But there's also the social aspects. There is social science and there is validation to that, to that work because there are patterns and like you said, how elections are done, how leadership is done, how people make decisions. Like there's patterns, there's, there's a machine, there's rules to that machine or, um, you know, uh, what do I want to say? Instructions to that machine. But as Asimov, right? Like, I don't know if you read any Asimov as any age. <laughs> but, I, I did. I yeah. did. Right. There's yeah. the foundation series. Right. Um, and so he really, I think, kind of touched into that and, in my opinion, gave some legitimacy to this idea of social science that a lot of scientists don't really do. Right. I get your point. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the crisis about social science is, yeah. is something that we are still struggling with because, yeah. um, you know, the, the methods of investigation and experimentation in social science, you just can't apply many of the techniques in natural science to it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, it, it's necessarily the case that the conclusions um, drawn in social science are, are going to have a great deal of ambivalence and a great deal of, um, you know, open to interpretation. Absolutely, uh, yeah. um, And, uh, and I, I think what, what, what's fascinating about, you know, science fiction in general about, about this sort of thing is when they try to explore the concept of the technology of collective decision-making, I think the tendency often in, in readers and in, in critics is to um, try to pin down the writer's own politics, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way this is written, you know, what, what sort of, you know, what is the, the writer's own politics in terms of this? Not, not that that's unimportant. I, I think it is very important to sort of reveal unconscious biases and to, right. to, to show up <laughs> the way in which um, the dominant uh, political narrative, in fact, 
visions of the future. But I think uh, another way to read these stories that, that I personally find much more satisfying, interesting, is to think about to, to examine the visions of, of future political decision making. You know, if, if a book proposes a new way to run elections, think think about just in what ways this this way actually is an improvement on what we do, and what ways is it worse, and right. why, under what circumstances would you propose doing things this way versus another? Mm-hmm. Um, or if if a book proposes uh, a, a, a new way of, of collective decision, of voting to reach consensus, of, of trying to um, uh, extract and extrapolate um, our own desires and our own preferences uh, and to aggregate that in a way that feels sensible. I mean, this is, he does this a lot in his books, uh, trying to imagine ways in which um, uh, technology can help surface uh, our preferences and to aggregate them in a way that feels more efficient, more true, and gives more weight um, to the preferences of those who have been excluded from the political process right now. Um, that that aspect of the work, I, I think, doesn't get enough uh, the, the coverage, but I think it's very fascinating. And it's, of course, you know, the kind of thing that I'm really interested in. I, I like to think about the ways in which uh, technology can, in fact, improve um, the, the the politics, the the political technology that we have, and, and to facilitate um, more just and better governing systems. That um, that brings us to our last, very last thing. I ask every guest about pop culture, and which we've kind of already talked about. You've talked about this idea of you're a big Star Wars fan. We both like Star Trek. I want to bring us to what are you most excited about for the future in pop culture? And in technology, or maybe they're the same thing. Maybe they're portraying the same well, thing. Well, uh, well, my my answer is going to be a little um, off the wall, perhaps. <laughs> I'm, I'm yes. actually super, super interested to see artificial intelligence create yeah. uh, often pop culture. You know, a lot of times we portray the rise of AI in a dystopian manner because we're all terrified of losing our jobs to mm-hmm. AI. Um, you know, not, not that I want to minimize that issue, but I, I think the solution to that isn't to somehow, you know, prevent robot uprising and, and, and stop them from stealing our jobs. I, I, I mean, to be, to be honest, I think most of the jobs that AI is going to steal are not jobs worth keeping. And what I mean right. is this, throughout most of human history, most of the jobs we've had are terrible jobs. They're repetitive, <laughs> they, they, they demand no creativity. I, I, I will be perfectly happy with the world in which, you know, most of the jobs that we have now are, are stolen, quote unquote, by AI. That, mm-hmm. that is a perfectly fine feature for me because most of these jobs, I mean, you know, one of, one of my first jobs was to be a filing clerk in the bank where my job was to go through all the checks and, and put them into little drawers. That job doesn't exist anymore because now we have machines to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I don't think it's a terrible thing that that happened. Um, but, but back to your point, um, I, I think actually is extraordinary when AI can get to the point where they can do things that seem to require what we think of as creativity. Uh, I would love to see AI compose stories, compose music. Artificial intelligence is design intelligence rather than our evolved intelligence. It's, it's, it's almost certain that AI is going to approach these problems in a different manner from a different direction. And it's going to give us lots of inspiration and tell us new hints. I mean, for example, AlphaGo, which is the AI that managed to defeat the world's top uh, grandmaster yeah. in the game of Go. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what's extraordinary, extraordinary about that is 
if you study the way AlphaGo plays Go, it's it's awesome. Uh, it doesn't do it in the way that humans are masters do. It, you know, for for thousands of years, humans have studied this game and devised all sorts of interesting strategies. AlphaGo doesn't do any of these things. AlphaGo taught itself a a, a completely new way of playing the game. And wow. if you are a Go player and you, you go study what AlphaGo does, it's like awesome. Uh, I, I believe, you know, the future is, uh, is, is a world in which, um, humans and AI collaborate to do things that neither of us alone can do, uh, as well. Uh, there are problems that humans can't solve by our own developed intelligence and right. AI can't by artificial intelligence, but together we will be able to come with new ways of approaching these problems and, and new solutions that neither of us uh, would have thought on our own. I, I love your like passion and enthusiasm for AI. And since this is, you know, our show is eventually going to be on the internet, like when I, the reason myself and you are probably not afraid of, you know, AI killing us all is because um, I always say thank you to Alexa. And I tell her like the future descendants of Regina Barbara DeGraff treat them well. So they already know that you like them. So it'll be fine. Like it's already out there in the, in the, in the oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, so we're, we're already hedging our bets right now. Is all, is all I'm saying. Oh, oh, absolutely. I, 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 I often tweet um, little sarcastic <laughs> notes about how if the AI eventually wants to come over, I'm leaving notes my, my, right, my, my allegiance. affection for a machine. Yeah, yes. I, I do that all the time. Like my, my my brother and sister, they have Alexa. I'm like, thank you, Alexa. I always say thank you. That's all I'm yes. saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> so with that... Great minds think alike. Right? I'm only kind of joking. So, um, so thank you so much, um, Ken Liu. This has been an awesome interview. I really love your work. I can't wait to actually start reading the longer books. And uh, I'm so excited. Uh, congratulations on the Luke Skywalker book. That's going to be awesome. Um, hopefully, are you going to do any more? I hope so. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Legends of Luke Skywalker, you know, about, uh, about Halloween. And I certainly hope uh, to do more. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's such a struggle to balance all the ideas. I'm right now working on the third book in the Dendron Dynasty, which I'm yes. super excited about. Yeah. Like, there's another sci-fi book I want to get to after this. And, and I, I like to do another Star Wars book. Uh, and there's just too many things, too many projects. Well, there's so many things I still want to talk to you about. So hopefully we can get you back on the show when another book comes out, pr promote it more. But I just want to say it's been awesome talking to you. That would be awesome. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. So much fun. Thank you for joining us. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com or kmre.org and click on the podcast link. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE Spark Radio and Western Washington University. We air weekly on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or kmre.org streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. Today's episode was recorded in the KMRE studios operated by the Spark Museum in Bellingham, Washington. Our producer is Regina Barbara DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Natalie Moore. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap your thing, iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs>